Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth. And this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, board-certified family physician leading a disruption in modern medicine, one that focuses on the largest organ in the body, skeletal muscle, to support longevity and fight back against the threat of obesity, heart disease, and diabetes. She has a background that includes a combined research and clinical fellowship in geriatrics and nutritional sciences at Washington University an undergraduate training in nutritional sciences at the University of Illinois. She's a subject matter expert and educator in the practical application of protein types and the levels for health, performance, aging, and disease prevention. Dr. Lyon's new book, Forever Strong, A New Science-Based Strategy for Aging Well, is out now. In this episode, Dr. Lyons discusses the significance of muscle for overall health and longevity. She explains the role of skeletal muscle in preventing metabolic dysfunctions and regulating the immune system. We talk about the importance of protein intake in the diet, how much we should be consuming for optimal health, along with tips for meal planning. She also explains the impact of protein intake on muscle growth, the comparison between plant-based and animal-based proteins, and the role of resistance trading in promoting muscle growth and overall health. This is an absolute must-listen episode. I've been following this high-protein strength training approach for the last year and must say that I feel my absolute best. Keep listening to learn more. It's officially oatmeal season and I'm so excited to share that you can find our Purely Elizabeth oatmeal products at select Walmart stores just in time to get cozy with a warming breakfast. You can find our blueberry flax oatmeal multi-packs and dark chocolate chunk oatmeal cups in the cereal aisle. Our gluten-free instant oatmeals are made with organic oats combined with five superfood grades and seeds for a delicious taste and texture. Our packs and cups make for an easy breakfast, snack, or dessert, and they're also perfect to take on the go. Click the store locator in the show notes to find a Walmart store near you. Happy oatmeal season and happy shopping! Dr. Gabby Lyons, welcome to the podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you on today. I'm such a huge fan. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I can't wait to pick your brain. I myself have been on a muscle building journey this past year. I feel like I'm someone who's been very health conscious my whole life, but it wasn't until about a year ago till really learning more about the importance of muscle and protein. And I have to say it's been an, an incredible journey. I haven't felt this good in so long. And when I look back at like the amount of protein I was consuming, it's probably a third of what I'm consuming now. So I can't wait for you to educate our community. I've been trying to help educate those in my circle, but your expertise is going to go a lot longer of a way. So let's start with what led you into studying the muscle and your background. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I have a, a bit of an interesting background. My godmother was the group before the Mark Hyman era. So before functional medicine and root cause thinking, there was a group of providers that knew that they had to call this kind of medicine and this philosophy something. 
it just so happened that my godmother was one of those people. And she was a PhD and is a PhD in nutritional sciences. I moved in with her when I was 17. Wow. From 17 to now, I haven't changed. I haven't changed my interest in nutritional science. I have not changed my interest in skeletal muscle. I mean, of course, those things have evolved, but from a foundational aspect, it has always been nutritional sciences. And what was her background? How did she get into that so ahead of its time, it sounds like? I think that that was really the era of thinking about more of the hippie-esque kind of a thing. Um, And what happened was is some individuals went into nutrition and food as medicine, right? There was the whole big juicing craze, all, uh, all of the components to that. And she just decided to put an education behind it. Well, you're so lucky that you had that influence in your life. And and so you started studying this way. And ultimately, what did that teach you? When was the big aha for you? So I did my undergraduate in human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism at the University of Illinois with Dr. Donald Lehman. And he is a world-class expert in protein metabolism. And largely, much of the information that we talk about now is based on some of his earlier work, which is quite fascinating when we think about how we stand on the shoulders of giants, all of which is important and relevant. And from that information and learning, I decided that I wanted to go to medical school because I wanted to be able to layer in just not nutritional sciences, but also the capacity to help people from a medical aspect, whether it was medication or even surgical interventions. I was very interested in being able to take Western medicine and implement it in a way in case there was a crisis, quite frankly. I was very interested in surgery early on. And by the time I finished medical school, I really hated it. I was extremely disillusioned with the way in which we practiced, the way in which physicians were trained, the way that it was deeply pathological. It was all about pathophysiology And what happens when things go wrong, not information on how to make it right or what one could do. And then after that, I decided to do a residency kicking and screaming and became very interested in the brain. And I did two years of psychiatry residency, found, as one could imagine, it just wasn't for me. Switched to family medicine, which family medicine is relatively all-encompassing, children, adults, And by the time I finished that, five years later, two years of psychiatry, three of family medicine, I realized that I had to go back. I had to go back and do something more. And that's when I went back and I did a fellowship in nutritional sciences and geriatrics slash obesity medicine. And it was there that I had the biggest aha moment of my career. I was seeing patients during the day in nursing homes, on hospital wards, at the end of life, in palliative care, it was very challenging and it faced me with my own mortality. I fell in love with one of the participants because early mornings and in the evenings, I was doing obesity medicine research. We were looking, so part of a fellow's job is that you get to do a project. And my project was on the back end of another project. You know, they, It was Washington University in St. Louis out of a, a very famous individual's lab who was running a lot of metabolism type research. And I was looking at brain function and body composition and this idea that insulin resistance begins in the brain. 
And I fell in love with one of the participants. She was a mom in her mid-50s postmenopausal, and she had done what the medical community had told her to do, which was eat less and exercise more. She had done all of those things and in the process destroyed her skeletal muscle and destroyed her brain. I imaged her brain and her brain looked like the beginning of an Alzheimer's brain. It was at that moment that I realized that the sickest patients had one thing in common, that the thread that wove them all together was not this obesity epidemic, that the thread that wove them together was this concept of being undermuscled, that they weren't overfat, but they were undermuscled. And that is where muscle-centric medicine came from. Wow. All right. So let's dive into that. So certainly we all know that muscle is important from a physical standpoint. We can look at the physical side of it and say, okay, it helps us to build muscle and or look nice and have a toned physique. But what you found out in the muscle-centric medicine is that the importance of a muscle is so much more than the physical and really the importance of that overall health and longevity. So what is that muscle doing for us? Why is it so important? Skeletal muscle is exactly what you pointed out. It is above and beyond looking good in a bikini. It is really uh, the origins for disease. It is the origins for health in humans, but it's also the origin for many of the Western diseases that we're seeing, including insulin resistance, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, any disease that is related to metabolic dysfunction. And when I talk about metabolic dysfunction, I'm talking about a few factors. I'm talking about elevated levels of insulin. I'm talking about elevated levels of glucose. I'm talking about elevated levels of triglycerides. The primary site for feudal utilization in the body is skeletal muscle. Skeletal skeletal muscle makes up 40% of the body weight. This is the target that one needs to prioritize. So number one, skeletal muscle is the metabolic currency. That's number one. Number two, it is the site of amino acid reserve. If an individual were to get injured, they pull from skeletal muscle in any event of a catabolic crisis. This is the place that your body goes to utilize these amino acids, which are building blocks for everything and anything that you see that has a structure. That is why it is so important that individuals maintain the health of their skeletal muscle because it's not an if, it truly is, you know, Elizabeth, it's a when thing. When are we going to need skeletal muscle? We're going to need it when we get sick because we are finding ourselves in a highly or more high inflammatory state. You're going to need it when you're on bed rest. You're going to need it when you've had an injury. You're going to need it for a whole host of reasons. And that's where skeletal muscle, having healthy skeletal muscle will buffer that. So that that's the second reason. The third reason is that it is an organ system. It's an endocrine organ system. And when you contract skeletal muscle, you secrete myokines. Myokines are peptides slash hormones that travel throughout the body that are unique to skeletal muscle from both the place in which it is of origin, meaning it comes from contracting skeletal muscle, to how it interfaces with the body. It can help regulate the immune system. So many important things that to this day, that conversation hasn't been there at all. And so I think it's so incredible the work that you're doing to really bring this to 
the forefront because for so long, I mean, as I said at the beginning, it's like I've I've been someone who's been into holistic health for the last 20 years and focused on my health, but protein and muscle haven't been part of that conversation. And so getting that to more people is so critical at this time when we're in a state of obesity and health at an ultimate worst in our society. Um, it's interesting. I had been wearing a levels for a while and then stopped. And this was, I was wearing it pre my protein intake. And just this past week, decided to put it back on to see, okay, what happens now that I'm consuming so much more protein in my diet? And as you were saying about our insulin levels, like it's incredible to see that before when I would have a half a cup of rice, I would get that spike. And now consuming so much more protein, you don't get those spikes. So that's just one example of the benefits that it has in the body. Yeah. Dietary protein is interesting. It actually does cause a phase one insulin release, meaning there is an initial release of insulin, which happens from some of the glucogenic amino acids. But it is not as significant if you were to equate it with a carbohydrate of the same dose. The other thing is those that eat a higher protein diet typically maintain blood glucose through this process of gluconeogenesis. So as we think about, okay, we know that muscle is so important and there's two big ways that we can help to increase muscle in the body. There's two ways to maintain the health of skeletal muscle, certainly. Okay. So if you can dive into what are those two big ways? Yeah. The two big ways are number one, training. Training is critical. That means the input for the outcome of metabolic adaptation, which is the goal, is probably the biggest bang for your buck. That's number one. Number two is dietary protein. Dietary protein is required to help recover to help build skeletal muscle. And again, there's only two ways to address the health of skeletal muscle. You know, and it's not just about the hypertrophy effect. It is about creating flux. It's about exercising. There's no such thing as a healthy skeletal muscle. Oh, okay. So let's start with protein. And yeah. let's start kind of with the basics. Like, A, how much should we be getting in a day? Let's start there. Because I think that conversation in and of itself is hard for people to wrap their head around. I was home for the holidays trying to tell my dad how much he needed to eat. And it was like so overwhelming. So how much do we need? And some tips around how do we get that in a, in a day? Yeah. The idea of how much do we need, we know that the minimum to prevent a deficiency, which is certainly not optimal for health, is 0.37 grams per pound of body weight. Again, this is the minimum to prevent a deficiency. This does not take us through aging. This does not take us through injury. It doesn't take us through optimal body composition as we train. Quite simply, what it does is it just prevents a deficiency. And maybe let's just touch on that for a second, just for people to like clear up when they say, well, I've heard, you know, the RDA says this, like, why is that maybe not the best suggestion and how dated that is? The RDA has not changed since easily the 80s. It was based on nitrogen balance studies. Nitrogen balance studies are or was a way, it still is, a way to look at the idea of what is the minimal amount of protein needed for growth. And it was done in 18-year-old men, which that doesn't translate to 
again, women, women in their 30s and their 40s, premenopausal, postmenopausal, an 18-year-old male based on a nitrogen balance study does very little for any kind of health outcome for someone like us or anybody other than an 18-year-old male. <laughs> you have to understand. And then I, I will also poise the question that, you know, when we're sick, people will take more vitamin C. The RDA for vitamin C is 60 milligrams. There is nobody that says, well, I'm not feeling well. I'm just going to take the RDA. It doesn't happen. People will take 100 milligrams, 200, 300 milligrams of vitamin C, double, triple, quadruple the RDA. However, when people are sick, they never think, wow, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to take more protein. It's just conceptually we haven't thought about these things. And it's a it's a quietly underappreciated. It is underappreciated as to how that we have been positioned to think about dietary protein. All of the data supports double the RDA for more optimal aging. Individuals, when given the RDA, doubling the RDA at 1.6 grams per kilogram, individuals uh, retain lean tissue, lose body fat, blood markers when calorie controlled, all they all do better. Clearly, the minimum to prevent deficiencies should not be thought of as optimal. Doubling the RDA should not also be thought about as a high-protein diet. Doubling the RDA would be considered a more optimal protein diet. One would say that anything one gram or higher could potentially be a higher protein diet. My recommendation is one gram per pound ideal body weight. I think that that is defensible. I also think that there is some flexibility. An individual could eat 0.7 grams per kilogram. For example, if you are a 115-pound female and you do the calculation at the RDA, it's 45 grams of protein. If you, which obviously that's that's not enough. No. You were to double that, it would be around 90 grams of protein. Now you're talking about a more reasonable amount. I, I don't recommend anyone go below 90 grams of dietary protein but that would be a more reasonable amount. And then of course, is there any harm to going higher? Well, the dietary reference intakes go all the way up to 2.5 grams per kilogram. Yeah, I was definitely in the camp of eating 45 grams of protein. And That's crazy. And <laughs> I know how your body composition has changed. Absolutely. Since uh, altering that. Yeah, it's changed dramatically for the better. So Okay, let's take someone who's 150 pounds, therefore they should be eating roughly 150 grams of protein. How do you recommend getting that in the day? Because that there was the conversation with like, oh my God, or how do I eat that? And for some people, especially some older people, I think who are doing intermittent fasting, and then they're like, how do I fit all of that protein in, in this time? Any tips around that? I think the first thing one has to think about is uh, a few things. There is a, a slight bit of nuance to this. And number one, total dietary protein intake is most important. If we were to build a hierarchy, we'll say that total dietary protein is important. If an individual is 150 pounds, then getting, again, anywhere from 150 grams of protein could certainly be a little bit lower. That is still appropriate. But if you wanted to go Somewhere in what I would consider a more higher end amount, 150 grams is reasonable. And when I when I think about 150 grams of protein, now the the next question is, how old is the person? 
And if the person is older, well, is that going to be the next question? I'm going to say, let's make it even easier. How many times a day do you prefer to eat? And typically, I recommend everybody eating at least twice a day. I do not recommend one meal a day. The individuals that eat more than one- That would be impossible. (laughs) Well, it's not. There was a really big fad for a while, which is OMAD. Yeah. I think that, again, there are nuances to it. I mean, the question becomes, number one, why are you eating? Are you eating to fill hunger? Are you eating to stimulate skeletal muscle? We know that dietary protein stimulates skeletal muscle through this mechanism of mTOR signaling. When we are thinking about what is relevant for us and not thinking about mechanistic data, but thinking how do we design a diet that is going to support longevity? How do we define what is important to us? Typically, many people believe it's body composition. And I would agree with that because, again, metabolic regulation is it is a key piece. It really truly is a, a cornerstone. The first meal when you wake up from an overnight fast is critical. The first meal when you wake up from an overnight fast, this is critical. Your body is primed for nutrients. This is the time where you have to hit between 30 and 50 grams of protein. What that does is it stimulates muscle. It triggers this responsiveness. It is going to set you up for mitigating hunger. I mean, why do people fall off their diet? They have challenges with hunger. Why do they fall off their diet? They fall off their diet because they can't regulate their blood sugar and they're driven to eat or they're driven by cravings. When we have a robust amount of amino acids at that first meal of the day, which is in dietary protein, a few things happen. Number one, we're not hungry. And number two, we are able to stimulate skeletal muscle, allow our body to generate its own glucose. Obviously, you can have some carbohydrates, but it triggers the body in a way where it becomes more metabolically efficient. So nail that first meal. There's no excuse. 30 to 50 grams, it could be a scoop of whey protein, scoop and a half to two scoops of whey protein. And then the second most important meal is the second meal before you go to bed. So that last meal of the day. The middle meal I don't care so much about. So two meals where you optimize for dietary protein between 30 to 50 grams would be ideal. To start, again, to start. And you know, even you said yourself that you had started with 45 grams of protein. Now, there is some challenge to that because if you are feeding below threshold, meaning below that 30 to 50 gram mark, you don't stimulate muscle the same way. Now I just saw how much muscle I gained this morning, so I'm definitely getting my protein in. (laughs) And how much muscle did you gain? I had gained 1.6 pounds from like uh, two months ago. That's incredible. Feeling good about it. So as far as protein is concerned, okay, we have our amount and breakfast and dinner is super important. What are some of your favorite sources? You mentioned first on whey protein. I'm curious, I'm just a protein powder because that's certainly an easy way or easier way for some people to get it in their diet. Is that your favorite or any recommendations? It depends. It depends on the lifestyle of an individual. Protein shakes are wonderful. I, I think that that's totally valuable. The other thing that I always recommend people to do is to prepare in advance. We prepare for the week. We make a bunch of lean steak. We make turkey frittatas. 
We make chicken shawarma. It's all made and cut up because we know that we're going to be hungry. We know that we're going to interface with all of these things. When you plan, you will keep your program. Again, you could make hard-boiled eggs and leave the hard-boiled eggs in the fridge. It doesn't have to be complicated to be efficient and effective. Absolutely. So from a plant protein versus animal protein perspective, they're certainly not identical. So what does that look like when it comes to their effect on building muscle? And if you could talk a little bit about those differences. Um, According to the literature, especially if you're young and you are a young, healthy male doing a lot of activity and getting uh, a fair amount of protein, close to 1.6 grams per kilogram, the data supports that there's no difference in terms of skeletal muscle gain. And Stu Phillips out of McMaster University has published some of these studies. So I, I think it is important to recognize that as long as the dietary protein is high enough, we can still stimulate skeletal muscle. You can still build and maintain skeletal muscle. Now, the question becomes, how does that work with an aging population? How does that work for the other physiological needs that are not met by plant-based proteins? For example, bioavailable iron, zinc, selenium, creatine, and serine. How do we account for these things? In the short term, we know that the plant proteins can be adequate to helping build muscle and maintaining muscle in the short term. What does that look like for an aging individual? And how does one develop in their 50s and 60s and 70s when they potentially are eating these foods over a long period of time with lower bioavailable nutrients and the carbohydrates that ride along with plant-based proteins if an individual doesn't want to rely on solely processed foods? This is where the challenge becomes. Uh, Again, where are you at? And why are you eating purely plant-based? And there's the short-term impact and then the long-term recognition of how do we want to age. So how about the fact that plant proteins aren't a complete protein necessarily? How does that factor into our protein intake and the effect in building muscle? There are certain proteins that are adequate, for example, soy proteins. But the challenge becomes getting enough of the protein to bring up those amino acids to an appropriate level. You know, there's ways in which, you know, we've all heard of rice and beans to get a complete protein. It's not that all plant proteins are incomplete. It's that they are of lower quality. Quality meaning the amino acids needed by the body and the bioavailability of the amount of protein. So for example, if you look at the back of a label and you look at the back of a hemp protein, and the amount of protein that it says in the, on the back of the label is 30 grams of protein. That doesn't mean that there's 30 grams of bioavailable protein. The amount that the body would, quote, see, I say that cautiously, it's probably 15, 15 grams of protein. Versus if you look at the back of a label from an animal-based product and it says 30 grams of protein, it has 30 grams of protein. It has 30 grams of bioavailable protein. So we have to recognize that It's not just the protein quality or quantity is a better way. It's not just the the protein quantity. It is also about the quality and the absorbability and the digestibility. So is there anything for people to look out for when, or good like rules of thumb, when they're looking at those 
plant-based proteins. Well, one can assume that a plant-based protein is nearly always a lower quality protein. Obviously, there are rice pea blends. You can look at the back of the amino acid profiles, but that is a bit complicated and not necessarily user-friendly for the average person. One way to think about it is animal-based products are of higher quality. This is not an emotional decision. This is not uh, an opinion. This is just based on hard, fast biological numbers. And then on the flip side, if you are ingesting and you prefer plant-based proteins, then the way in which you would tackle that would you would you would eat anywhere from 35% more total calories of that protein. Which again, if you care about calories, it's not necessarily metabolically effective or efficient of where you want to go. So that that's how I would think about it. But the biggest question is understanding what your values are and how you think about designing a diet. Sure. I think that the best way is both plant and animal because they do different things. They have different benefits. So I know we're all unique. And just to your exact point that, you know, it depends on what you're looking for, what your goals are, what your ethics are, all of those things. But still would love to hear what's a typical day of your protein intake? What does that look like? So I'm tiny. I'm actually around 109, 10 pounds, five foot one. And my protein intake is around 110 grams of protein. This morning, my, I had breakfast with my kids. I had an egg and turkey frittata, had around 45 grams of protein, had a little bit of spinach, had a little bit of mushrooms in there, had some coffee, had coffee with a shot of espresso. I mean, for all the parents. <laughs> then took my kid to the uh, physician because I think that she fractured uh, one of her metacarpals. You know, it's the whole thing. Uh, you, this morning. You a dog, but it, <laughs> it, that's kind of how it rolls. And so that that's where I've started. And I haven't had anything else yet. I, it's 1130. Today was a little bit of an odd day because we had to go to the doctor. But I hit my target meal and I'll eat again in another hour. Once I'm done, I'll have one more meal. I'll sit down and have a meal with my family. And that will be tonight. I already know what it's going to be because it's already prepped. Because you planned. Because uh, I plan. And we use certified Piedmontese. I don't know if you've ever had that meat, but it's very, no. it's amazing. It's amazing. And if you guys love that, you can message me. I'll give you a, a discount code. I don't have any financial relationship with them. Yeah, fine. I'll tell you what it is. But it's, it's G Lion. And you guys, I think it's like 20% off. And again, I have no financial relationship with them. I just love their product so much that for my patients, that's why I got the code for my patients so that they can have it. Amazing. Yeah, I know exactly what we're eating for dinner. And I'm really big into shishado peppers or green beans, something like that. Have some rice. Yes, I eat rice. Not the the devil. It's totally okay. Today is an off day from training. I won't be too carbohydrate heavy today because I'm not going to have a training day. I'll do maybe some outside time, maybe some yoga with the family, ice bath, call it a day. Sounds lovely. Sounds perfect. <laughs> That's it. So that's what, that's what today will be in terms of food. So it'll be that meal. The last meal is planned. That will get me to right off the bat, I'm thinking around 100 grams. And then I'll have something in between, which will bring me up to that total protein intake. So you just mentioned carbs and curious just to hear your point of view on carbs and fat. Certainly the conversation started. We know that muscle is so much more than just physique, but there's certainly a lot of people who are also interested in the impact of of the muscle impact on our physique. So curious to hear your point of view on carbs, fats, and 
all, all of that good stuff. I am certainly not anti-carbohydrate. Again, if you the the current American eats 300 grams of carbohydrates a day, the current recommended di- dietary allowance is 130. You can obviously adjust high or lower depending on your metabolic health. I have carbs. I have about 110 grams of carbs a day. I have no, maybe sometimes higher depending on my training. The carbs that you eat are important. It truly is about total calories. The carbohydrates that we choose, we tend to choose fibrous carbs. But again, we will eat rice in my family. We'll have sweet potato. Uh, We have no issue with carbohydrates. We do eat fruit too. Again, fruit is fructose and fructose is not utilized by skeletal muscle. So if you are eating fruit before or after workout, that's not ideal, certainly, because that is that's fructose. Your skeletal muscle doesn't use that. But the more healthy skeletal muscle mass you have, the more mitochondria you're going to house and the more carbohydrates technically you will burn. And again, how do you begin to think about carbohydrates? One rule of thumb is I don't go above 50 grams per meal outside of exercise because then you will stimulate a robust insulin response and that is not a positive. We don't want ebbs, we don't want continual ebbs and flows of insulin. And how about from a fat perspective? It depends. I mean, again, the way I think about fat is a total calorie perspective. If your total calories are in check and you have your protein where you want it, you can determine what you're going to have for fat or carbohydrates. Totally up to you. Totally um, interchangeable. In yes, that interchangeable. For me, I do much better on carbohydrates than I do on fat. So as we said, no one size fits all personal. So whatever works best for you. And you can feel that. So as you think about bringing this conversation into the forefront of the world today, like what have we gotten wrong and why has this conversation really not been part of the dialogue on the importance of muscle? Well, the primary dialogue, again, it's beautifully in line with standard medicine. And standard medicine is disease treatment, not prevention. And when we talk about disease treatment, then we have to talk about obesity because that is the external driver of the things that we see versus the symptomology that obesity is, which is unhealthy skeletal muscle. We have to appreciate that the way in which the system is set up is not a root cause approach. And that is where muscle-centric medicine comes from, is this idea that skeletal muscle is at the root of things like insulin resistance, things like obesity, cardiovascular disease as a driver of unhealthy metabolism, even Alzheimer's disease. The root of all of these things is a efficient and effective metabolism that allows for the primary blood markers that we're looking at to be within an optimal range. The way that we are going to do that and leverage that is through the health of skeletal muscle, period, end of story. And that, quite frankly, is where disease begins. By the time you've gotten to the place where you have elevated levels of triglycerides, elevated levels of ApoB, elevated levels of insulin, elevated levels of glucose, you have gone very far off track and you either have number one, low skeletal muscle mass or number two, unhealthy skeletal muscle mass. Certainly your new book is going to really help bring this conversation into the forefront for people. And there's so many great tools in there for people to look at from your recipes and plans. So the other big part of it is on strength training that you talk about in the book. So let's touch on that. And 
what that looks like, what's an ideal strength training program, how much time, energy should we be focused on to really see those results in growing that skeletal muscle mass? The first thing that you have to think about is, number one, resistance training is non-negotiable. So it is well-established. It is an effective intervention for sarcopenia. It is an effective intervention to enhance muscular health strength, adaptation, whether it's size and endurance. We know that resistance training, which is moving something against force, is a key to this. And then the next thing that we have to understand is what is the goal? The goal isn't to do this specific program with this amount of weights and call it a day. The goal that we are looking for is an adaptation. We are doing this repetition, this load. We are doing this activity to gain better health and to become better at and more capable at life. That could be three, four, five days a week, depending on how you break it up. A great starting place is three days a week of resistance training. You could do 10 sets per muscle group. Again, these are very broad recommendations. Sure. And I cover this all in the book. But the goal is Again, you're going to put in effort. You are going to train each muscle group twice a week, again, to start. And if you are an untrained individual, you will begin to see benefits more quickly. The key is also consistency. People will always mention something about that. But three days a week is a great place to start because resistance training is non-negotiable. But you cannot go in there and be on your phone and be distracted. That is not what we're looking for. We're looking for the creation of a stimulus and response. In other words, like it needs to be hard. You can't be lifting a five pound, well, for some people, five pound weight could be challenging at the beginning, but that perceived exertion, right? Right. Perceived exertion. And then the, and that's a really good point. And then the other part of this is you're absolutely correct. It does have to be something that is creating a bit of stimulus where you are getting tired and potentially you cannot do anymore. There are multiple ways to get a stimulus, whether if you are someone who is just going to lift a five pound weight, then doing it for 20, 25, 30 repetitions, that could be one way, right? As long as the volume is there to create the stimulus. But the other component to this is doing something that you're going to see results from, which is, can you continue to do, how long is it going to take you to burn out on a lower amount of weight? You, you want to train for two hours a day? Or do you want to get in there for 45 minutes and really focus on the stimulus and hopefully the compensatory adaptation, right? And then the next thing that I think about is adding in some kind of high-intensity interval training. High-intensity interval training, there's a lot of discussion around VO2 max. VO2 max is important. It is correlated to longevity. The better your VO2 max is, this would be one way in which people train VO2 max is slow, steady state, quote, zone two training. You don't have to do it like that. I'm a mom with two very little children and a husband who is in a surgical residency. I do not have hours a week to dedicate to zone two training. So instead, 20% of my training is high intensity. High intensity interval training, it's not that much. I might go for a total of 10 minutes of work two times a week. 
So it's a total of 20 minutes of high-intensity interval training. Seems doable. It's totally doable. So what is the best way, in your opinion, to test our bodies for the amount of skeletal muscle that we have? And is there a rule of thumb of like what that number percentage should be? It's quite challenging. We can't say that we know the optimal number of skeletal muscle mass for any individual. There's charts, of course, that look at appendicular lean mass. Quite frankly, I'm not impressed with with these things. There is information that talks about if you're sarcopenic, but we don't even measure skeletal muscle mass directly routinely. DEXA doesn't measure skeletal muscle mass directly. DEXA measures bone and uh, certainly volume or blood and then lean tissue, but it doesn't, and adipose tissue, but it doesn't directly measure skeletal muscle mass. It is an extrapolation. That's a challenge. That's a challenge because it's such an important organ system. It also doesn't measure the quality of the tissue. Eventually, we will go to a place where we are measuring something called a D3 creatine, which is a deuterated creatine. It's a tagged creatine where we'll be able to directly look at skeletal muscle mass. We're not there yet. For the general population, a DEXA will do or a in-body. This will do at this time, but it's not what I would consider to be ideal because it takes about a 10% change in muscle mass to, to register on a DEXA. Oh, wow. The change might not be that drastic for people. They might be having incremental changes. There are challenges with these things. And I, I know that that's not, uh, I'm sure everybody would love a perfect answer. And unfortunately, we're not there yet, but eventually we certainly will be. But you know, for Appendicular lean mass, if someone knows their appendicular lean mass, that would be a low lean mass would be considered less than 19.75 kilograms, you know, for men and less than 15 for women, kilograms for women. But most people are not looking at their appendicular lean mass. No. Well, hopefully there's some sort of a scale that comes out that makes it a lot easier for people to be able to look at that. And there certainly are right now, but again. They're not accurate. How accurate? They're just, you know, a CT or MRI would be great. You don't want to do a CT all the time because of radiation exposure. MRIs are expensive. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to strength training? Oh, number one, you're going to get bulky. The number one thing I hear from women is they're going to get bulky. And then I always remind them of uh, the strong, strong women numbers. And strong women numbers are how much do, does your toddler weigh? How much does your dog weigh? How often are you picking them up? Your dog weighs 40 pounds. I don't see you busting out of your, <laughs> your biceps are not busting out of your sweater because you've been picking your dog up and down, right? How much do your groceries weigh? It just doesn't happen. Yeah. How much does your suitcase weigh when you're going to put it overhead, right? 40 pounds. You can't go over 50 because then you get charged or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, so yes, number one is the bulky aspect of resistance training. I don't want to look like a man. The other thing is I'm already getting too much protein. It's also another thing that I hear. And then thirdly, the pushback I get from exercise is the bulky. The pushback I get from um, nutrition is red meat, high quality proteins are killing the planet or it's bad for the heart. And these things are not true. These are total caloric issues if you are concerned about saturated fat, you may be one of those individuals that potentially 
uh, has a reason to be concerned, but it typically is in the the light of an overconsumption of calories. It's not inherently a high quality protein issue. So going back to your first misconception about uh, how hard did it, or that you're going to get bulky. And the reality is that it's pretty hard to put on muscle mass. And then to my earlier point about my 1.6 pounds, like what is a, and again, everybody is different, but what is some, uh, a number that people could expect over, you know, a year's period of time? Good question. Um, it depends if someone is trained or untrained. Typically women can put on half the amount of muscle that a man can put on, uh, Again, it it is totally variable, but if someone is untrained, you might easily be able to put on a pound of muscle a month. But again, it, this really, really depends. Could you put on two pounds of muscle a month? Maybe, right? You you seemed that you did, but again, it depends on where you are with your training. It depends on where you are with your protein, or are you under muscle to begin with? The more advanced you are in training, the more difficult it is to put on skeletal muscle mass. But as a rule of thumb, you know, again, I hate to say that they could put on one to two pounds, but it could be true. It, it truly depends on the individual and their body type, their stimulus response, their training, their recovery. Sure. So as you mentioned, recovery makes me think just of, of supplements and curious to hear what supplements, if any, that you recommend that you do for yourself or that you recommend for your clients and community. I, I actually have a handful of supplements I love. Number one, I wish I had invented this supplement myself and it's called MitoPure and it's urolithin A. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I have. I haven't taken it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. For mitochondria. I wish that I had invented it and uh, discovered it and patented it myself because this is a postbiotic that has been shown to improve muscular strength and endurance. And it's so fascinating because it really does highlight this gut muscle connection. I wish I had done that. And we take anywhere between 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day. Oh, okay. Definitely going to start taking that. It's one of my favorites, but that is something that I always recommend and wish I had invented. The other thing is vitamin D. People are typically deficient in vitamin D. I use a liposomal vitamin D just because of absorption seems to be better. Everyone should be checking their levels. There's no reason in this day and age that you don't know. Yeah. And then a good fish oil. And, and how much vitamin D do you take? Because again, the RDA is pretty low. It depends on what your levels are. I like to see individuals blood between 60 and 80 when you check your levels. So you would titrate to get there. And then for a comprehensive EPA DHA fish oil, two grams, two to four grams, if you were going to be crazy with it, but two grams is, is adequate could be two grams of, of EPA would be certainly sufficient. And then you could take a one and a half grams of DHA, just find a good omega uh, vitamin. And you can also do an omega index to see where you are. And then do I like creatine? I do. If you don't eat a lot of red meat, I just restarted taking it. And right now I am also taking a ketone and the ketone, what am I taking? It's, um, us, it's, Audacious, audacious okay. nutrition, just amazing. But I cycle through these things. So my standards are MitoPure, vitamin D, and fish oil. Always, I'm always taking those. I would love to throw in a magnesium. I love to throw in a zinc. But again, those three are my foundations. And then depending on what my blood work shows, I will add in or take away and cycle okay. through 
creatine. I will cycle through magnesium. I should be taking a calcium supplement, a calcium vitamin D K2 supplement. So I just cycle through. Well, I definitely have to try that med appear. Oh, it's amazing. Amazing. Again, I wish that I had come up with it myself. Truly. (laughs) I didn't. How does muscle affect our sleep? Is there a connection there of building? No, probably not directly. I mean, one could think about ways in which we could correlate muscle health to sleep. But uh, I think that the biggest driver of good sleep is how in circadian alignment you are. There certainly are muscle clocks, not an, an expert in those. And a muscle clock would be kind of the activity, the natural rhythm of the tissue I can't say for certain that it would um, affect sleep. But again, we could also say, well, what happens with blood sugar regulation if you don't? You know, one of the things that I right. see in my postmenopausal women clients, my patients, that they have low muscle mass and high visceral fat, their sleep is definitely affected by not being able to regulate their blood sugar. So it ends up perhaps really low and they wake fixing, up and it ends up fixing your sleep at the end of the day when you build your muscle because you're strength training and you're having protein and you're fixing the diet. Potentially. I would say that the on the flip side, if you don't sleep, it is more difficult to maintain the health of your skeletal muscle versus if you train and maintain the health of your skeletal muscle, do you affect sleep? Well, maybe you affect blood sugar regulation and that can affect sleep. But I, I think that the flip side is probably more significant if you're not getting enough sleep, what that is and how that impacts muscle health. All right. One last question before we jump into some rapid fire Q&A. How quickly do you lose your muscle? So let's say you're, you know, taking the month off and... If you are on bed rest, which is zero, zero activity, you can lose two pounds of skeletal muscle mass from your legs, both... Um, younger. How quickly? In a week? Seven days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So muscle mass, you'll lose strength first and then you'll potentially lose mass. If you are out walking around, then you typically and your protein is adequate, you will be able to maintain. If you are physically active and potentially just doing even two days a week of yoga, we have seen in earlier studies that you will be able to maintain that tissue. You certainly won't grow but you're not going to lose. If you are completely inactive, then again, that is a rapid, that's a great question. That is a rapid loss in tissue. That's really good to know. All right. We're going to move into some rapid fire Q and a. Three things that you are currently loving. My kids mostly. A really taking a deep dive into hormones, female hormones and the effect on skeletal muscle and spending more time thinking about what we are building a community. So we built a community that we're going to launch January 13th. And I'm really excited about community. Well, they will be able to come on. We'll do q and I'll have guest experts because community is everything. We rise together. And I'm favorite words to live by. Dedication, discipline, focus. Favorite productivity hack? No phones. No, nothing. That's a good one. And I will say also being aware of the impulse of discomfort and surfing that urge. Love that. A favorite book or podcast for growth? 
Well, I love doing my podcast. I I love doing it because I listen and learn from other people. I'm currently I have a book club too with my one of my best friends, Emily Priscilla, and it is called Freedom Reads. We read a book a month. That was so fun. We're currently reading Indistractable. And is that a community book club or just yes. a book club? Yeah. I mean, it's less than $20 a month. Awesome. We open it um, a few times a year. And where can everyone find the podcast and the... So, so for the book club, you can go to freedomreads.com. For my podcast, you can go to Apple, Spotify, go to my website, drgabrielline.com. And then the community will be there too. That's what I'm really excited about. How cool will it be to have a community where we already have six or 7,000 people in a free community and now we're going to close it and move it to a different kind of community. It's going to be awesome. It's going to have courses, it's going to have workouts. It's going to be amazing. So exciting. Congratulations. And lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? Training. Resistance training. Love that. Well, in closing, you mentioned community, but anything else that's next for you and what's happening? The Forever Strong community, of course, and we will be offering some free programs. All of this can be found on my website. I have a great newsletter that is also free. I provide a ton of free content because the goal is how do we change the narrative and, and bring health and wellness forward? Love it. Well, Dr. Gabby Lyon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for bringing this conversation to the forefront. It's so important. It's been so impactful in my life and hope so many other people have it be impactful in their life. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.